0: This is Craig Brown and welcome to Passages. Passages is a space to explore Bible passages used in churches for preaching, reflection, and prayer. My hope is that Passages will shine a unique light on text used in the lectionary in the coming weeks. Today's passage is Acts chapter 16, verses nine to 15. It's the lectionary reading for the sixth Sunday of Easter in the year C cycle of the lectionary. It will be one of the scriptures read on May 22nd, 2022. This is one of my favorite stories in the book of Acts. It's the story of how the the Macedonian appears to the Apostle Paul and beckons him to come to Macedonia to preach the gospel. It's a beautiful story, and in part, its beauty is enriched by the opportunity I had a number of years ago to to visit uh, several of the locations that are described in this story, and And it really made this story come to life for me. So I'm excited to share this message uh, today with you and the study with you about Acts chapter 16. In this particular moment, Paul finds himself in what is today Turkey. Uh, In the ancient world, that was called Asia Minor. And as Paul's in the middle of the country of Turkey, he's on a missionary journey that was commissioned by the church in Antioch. And so he's traveling around uh, regions that we would today call uh, probably starting in areas near Syria, Jordan. He's traveled northward, up and through, and around Turkey. He's been to a variety of places in that part of the world. And he's at a crossroads. He would like to go to several other cities in Asia Minor, in Turkey. Uh, but it says in the story in Acts 16 that he was blocked by the spirit of Jesus from going there. And so it's kind of a, a Luke's way of the Luke is the writer of the book of Acts uh, to describe how how Paul discerned he wasn't supposed to go to those places, that actually he was supposed to sit and wait. He simply waits until there's a confirmation or some kind of call to move. It's really interesting that that Paul recognizes in a, a, a kind of a mystical and a spiritual discernment that it's not time to move yet. And so he waits. And the story describes in Acts chapter uh, 16, beginning at verse 9, how he has this vision of a man from Macedonia who appears. And when the man from Macedonia appears, the the man from Macedonia then speaks and actually delivers a message to the Apostle Paul that he should come to Macedonia and proclaim the gospel there. This is a rich story because the kind of vision that Paul has just had where there's a man from Macedonia that bids him to come to a certain location This vision is actually more common in the Greco-Roman world than it is within a Jewish world. This is not the kind of vision we often see described within Jewish writings in what we call the the Old Testament, nor is it very um, uh, similar to Jewish visions as recorded in other pieces of Jewish literature. But it is common within Greco-Roman literature. There are accounts of similar visions given to Caesars and to other Roman leaders that would beckon them to take a certain direction in their ministry or their vision. Now, Macedonia is a region of Greece, not Turkey, it's in Greece, that is named after Philip of Macedon. That's why it's called Macedonia, Philip of Macedon. Philip of Macedon is Alexander the Great's father. And so this may not mean a whole lot if, you, if you're not familiar with some of this ancient history, but Alexander the Great was the individual in the fourth century who's BCE who expanded the Greek rule, reign, and language throughout the ancient world. Alexander had a had a vision of all of one world being united together, uh, in at least in that case under Greek rule. And so uh, the expansion of what we know today as the Roman Empire started actually under the Greek influence of Alexander. So Philip of Macedon is Alexander's father. So there are some scholars who read this story in Acts 16 and wonder if the person who appears to Paul in the dream is actually Philip of Macedon or Alexander, because it kind of fits this narrative of Alexander's vision of one world. And as the gospel leans into this, is that the, the gospel is to be preached to all the world. Regardless of who the vision is and who's who that character actually is, Paul's response is clear. This is what he's been waiting for. And so he decides to leave and to be obedient to the vision that he's been given. Now, a special note here in Acts I want you to just pay attention to The the pronoun in the story in the book of Acts switches from the third person to the first person. And what that means is you'll notice the pronoun we all of a sudden creeps into the story. So when we're reading this passage of Scripture and it talks about how Paul, after he had the vision, decided to leave, it says in verse, let's see, verse, uh, verse 10, It says, when he had seen the vision, Paul, we we immediately sought to leave from Macedonia. See the we sitting there? So it somehow becomes clear that Luke joins Paul at this moment in the book of Acts. So even though Luke is the writer of Acts, there's a sense now that Luke has begun actually traveling with Paul uh, through this portion of the section of Acts. And so they resolve to leave immediately in obedience to the vision. That opens up a key passageway for us, that effective Christian leadership follows God's leadership. You know, at times we get confused about how the church is led differently. The church is not led through the particular practices we see in the broader world. It's led through more of a mystic and spiritual type of influence, And so for us as uh, individuals in the life of the church, and even for those of us who are leaders within the life of the church, our work is less the work of deciding the direction we should take. And it's actually more one of discerning the direction that God is calling us to go. And so for this reason, if it's mystical and spiritual, good leadership is good discipleship. Good following, good listening, prayerful, discerning, open. Effective Christian leadership always follows God's leadership. Now, Acts 16 continues in it. It describes the journey now that Paul and Luke and their other companions will have to undertake in order to get to Macedonia. They have to cross the sea in order to get there. Now they could go by land and it would take a long time for them to make that movement. So instead the much more economical passage here is to go by sea. And so they depart from Troas and then they go from there to Simothrace and then finally to Neapolis. So it's a there's a stop on the way to get to Neapolis. Neapolis is the port in Greece that leads into Macedonia. Apparently, their journey is blessed because, as Luke describes the story, they had very favorable winds and uh, a journey that took them a day in the book of Acts. it's In this part of Acts, we read elsewhere in Acts that this exact same journey took five days to make. So apparently, they had very favorable winds. They arrive in Neapolis Uh, Neapolis is simply a compounded Greek word, "nea" meaning new, "polis" is the word for city, so it's the new city or the port. They then, after landing there, they take a ten-mile journey inland to arrive at Philippi. Now, Philippi is a city in Macedonia. So, Macedonia is not a city; Macedonia is a region. It's an area. Philippi is an important location because, as you would imagine, just like Macedonia is named for Philip of Macedon, Philippi is named after Philip of Macedon as well, but now this particular city is named after his first name, Philip. Now, the city of Philippi was a Roman colony. Now, that designation colony is different from any other Roman city. Uh, Because of uh, the significance of great events that have happened in this particular city. Um, the Romans designated it a colony and by designating it as a colony, it became a kind of a welfare city for the retired Roman military officers. So if you were a Roman, um, officer in the army, you could retire and live in Philippi and there you would pay no taxes. You would have certain amount of freedoms that you wouldn't enjoy elsewhere. So, um, I, would, I don't want to say that Philippi is a retirement community, but it's a retirement community. And what made the city famous? It's a very famous city in the Roman tradition. It is the location where Octavius and Anthony defeated the murderers of Julius Caesar, Brutus, and Cassius. And so Octavius, of course, would go on to become Caesar Augustus, and so this place Pivotal location where this great battle was fought following the death of Julius Caesar uh, is why the city has become a Roman colony. It is not the capital of Macedonia, but it was a significant and a well known city. Paul and his companions arrive in Philippi, remember 10 miles inland now from Neapolis, and they go first on the Sabbath day, as was Paul's custom, to find a synagogue. And When they arrived in Philippi, it's likely because it is a Roman colony, there's no synagogue there. But they figure out where the Jewish people are gathering outside the city walls. So Paul and his companions go outside the city walls, and of course they find where these Jews have gathered, as they've heard. And they're in an outdoor space near a river, and it's there that Paul begins to speak It's interesting when you read this particular story in Acts chapter 16, there's all of this episode of Paul having this vision, Paul traveling across the sea, Paul arriving in Neapolis, Paul arriving in Philippi, finding where the Jews worship. And there's no mention here of Paul saying anything. Paul speaks for the very first time in this entire story when they actually arrive next to the river, and that's where Paul begins to preach to the women that were gathered there. So from where the story started in Turkey— Now, all the way here to Greece, now Paul finally speaks in the story. That doesn't mean he didn't say anything along the way. It's that Acts doesn't tell us anything he says until he gets here. The last thing I'll say about this particular part of uh, the book of Acts is that um, I want you to notice the geographic movement. In the ancient world, Turkey is considered part of Asia. It still is to this day, and that's where Paul was. And as soon as Paul steps off that boat in Neapolis and arrives in Macedonia, that marks his first footstep on the continent of Europe. And so this story describes how the gospel moves from Asia to Europe and what that means for us and the significance of it. And that really opens another key passageway for us. That faithful discipleship follows the Spirit one step at a time. At no point does Paul get told the whole picture of what's going to happen. Paul isn't told in the vision that he's going to go to Philippi. He's not told in the vision that he's going to go to a river. He's not told in the vision he's going to preach the gospel and baptize people at that river. All he hears is go to Macedonia. One step at a time. He follows God in obedience. So for us as human beings, we often want the course plotted out. We want it all mapped out. What's going to happen? We want to see every step. We want to see what everything's going to look like. And what we see again, time and again in Scripture, is that God simply doesn't do that. There's an invitation to take the next step. Nothing more. I think there's a reasoning why this happens in our life, why the Holy Spirit works in this way, is because it refines in us a capacity to be nimble. It creates within us a capacity to live in the moment. It allows us to become adaptive and creative people, not so structured by our systems that we like, but it allows us to be obedient and to learn obedience in every single moment of our life. And in doing so, ah, creative possibilities open up that we never would have imagined if we had it all planned out. And so the story continues with Paul arriving at this river. He meets there uh, a small Jewish community that is gathered. It's dominantly one made up of women. So Paul begins to preach and to tell the story of Jesus to this group gathered by the river. And one of the women listening to him is a woman named Lydia. Lydia has the honor of being the first convert to Christianity in Europe. She came from a city called Thyatira which is actually in Turkey of all places, and it's a city well known for its purple trade. Now, purple trade meant that uh, uh, they they dyed fabric purple there because the plants necessary to create the purple dye grew there. And so uh, a lot of people knew that good purple came from Thyatira. And people who wore purple often were the very wealthy or the royalty. It's for this reason that purples become associated with regal, uh, a regal idea, and uh, that it's, uh, it's a rare color. It's hard to come by. It's quite costly to uh, manufacture and then to use in the dyeing process. And so because of this, Lydia is often depicted as a very wealthy woman. She is a trader of purple. She's likely, as best we can try to figure out in in this moment in time in the Roman world, uh, she's likely a freed slave uh, who has no male leader. And so she's become an independent businesswoman. She's become an entrepreneur. And so uh, in the story of Acts chapter 16, she's depicted in some ways a lot like Simon the Tanner that Peter stayed with earlier in the book of Acts back in Acts chapter 9. While she's a woman of means, she certainly is a woman of means. She is not likely a person of great wealth. Uh, She is the apex of female leaders in the ancient world, but sometimes um, we're drawn to the story of Lydia as a successful businesswoman and that she's often depicted as being very affluent and wealthy and a a trader and a corporate woman who, who does great business. She likely is a very gifted and talented businesswoman, But it's unlikely that she is a a woman of extraordinary wealth. She is very well off and she is very able to take care of whatever needs she and her household might have. But she's probably not likely regarded as a woman of extraordinary wealth. That was simply not allowed, even in the Roman world, in these paternalistic times in which the patriarchy dominated the way in which people live their life every day. So sometimes when we read a story like this, we get attracted to this notion of uh, Lydia being this liberated woman who's very, very wealthy and much sought after and very respected. We can't let our attraction to the story exaggerate what the story is actually telling us. We have to read the story in context. Lydia, it says, is a God-fearer. And so she's just like other God-fearers in the story, the Ethiopian, Cornelius. This is a person who believes and follows the Jewish God, but is not, in fact, Jewish. It says in the story that as she's listening to Paul preach, that the Lord opened her heart. And this phrasing is used by Luke elsewhere. He uses it, for example, in the, the story he tells in Luke chapter 24, the Emmaus story that the hearts of the two companions walking along Jesus on the road to Emmaus were opened. And it says that she received the gospel and believed, and that she and her household were baptized. Now this was likely Lydia, all of her workers, other family members, people who were there with her. And she immediately, immediately expresses one of the key values that defined the early church, and it was the value of hospitality she immediately extends an invitation to Paul and his companions to come and stay with her. Now, she bears this extraordinary mark of hospitality. It's a witness of the Spirit. And it's such a powerful mark we need to pay attention to because oftentimes we look for these more sensational marks of the early church, uh, speaking in tongues and miracles and all these powerful manifestations. But one of the most important manifestations of power In the book of Acts is the power of hospitality, and she immediately expresses it after her conversion. She then will go on to become a great benefactor for Paul's ministry, along with many others. She will use the money she makes from her purple trading to finance Paul's ministry throughout the ancient world. This is an important encounter that Luke has described here. Lydia is a significant and important woman and that she becomes a financier for a lot of the work that Paul will do. And she stands among others by the time we finish reading the book of Acts and read Paul's letters. We can begin to see a laundry list of people that Paul has recruited to fund his missionary efforts. As I mentioned at the beginning of the podcast, this is a lovely location, an absolutely lovely location in Greece. I hope that you have a chance to visit it someday. There's a church built there in honor of Lydia and her conversion. The baptismal site along the river are there even to this day. And the tribute to this beautiful story in Acts is still there. It's deep and it's rich. And it opens up a key passageway to us. That God's providence appears in unexpected ways. You know, Paul and his companions have no idea who they're going to meet. Or even if their mission in Macedonia will work. And as long as they're obedient to follow God's leading one step at a time, God opens a new door. And this new door invites them to meet Lydia, to preach the gospel. It opens up Lydia's leadership, her provision, her hospitality, that she's able to sustain and support Paul's work. She becomes a leader in the life of the church. Who would have known any of these things would happen? We never know when these moments will occur. We simply know they will happen. God's providence appears in unexpected ways. That's it for this week. If you have comments or reflections, I invite you to visit my website, revcraig.com. If you click on News in the upper right-hand corner, you'll see a drop-down menu that says Podcasts. Click on podcasts, then click on this week's episode and leave a comment. I'd love to hear from you and be in conversation with you. Passages will be taking a short pause after the end of May, so this podcast will be stopping for a short bit. So look for news on my website about when it will resume. There's still one more episode left in the month of May, so please tune in to listen to it. For now, I bid you all grace. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.